Kia ora and welcome back to The C Word, Kiwis Talk About Cancer. I'm your host, Helen King, and this is the podcast for cancery people who want real conversations about cancer. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to good podcasts. During May, the Brain Tumor Support Trust has held the Go Grey in May campaign to raise awareness and funds for brain tumor sufferers in New Zealand. My guest today knows all too well the huge impact a brain tumor diagnosis has on a person and their family. You may have seen her in the news when she was walking the length of the North Island earlier in the year raising funds for the charity. Kate Coatesworth was just a few months out the other side of her treatment when she embarked on the huge trek with a group of her supporters. The idea came about after she made a passing comment to her dad and before she knew it, she was packing her hiking boots and walking a very long way. Kate joined me over Zoom recently to talk about her effort walk and what it's like to be diagnosed with stage 4 brain cancer in your 30s. This is Kate's story. I'm really intrigued to know what were some of the highlights and what were some of the the challenges? Because, I mean, you've mentioned before that you're in a group of people and you're with them all day, all night. I imagine that you're exhausted at times, you're sore at times and all of those things that go on with that amount of walking in a day. Walk us through some of that stuff. What was what was it actually like? So the first week was really hard because <laughs> it was the whole first the whole first week was I mean when they really hard. Like it was absolutely amazing. It was probably one of highlights in terms of we walked for a hundred and five kilometers over the first week of just beach. So there was no houses, there were no people, there was just the sea, the sand, and the sand dunes. And it was, yeah, it was amazing. I got wet feet on the first day, and it was pouring with rain, and we had to hike up sand dunes and kind of felt it was so hard. And then because I got wet feet, and I think also because I was so soon out of treatment, my immune system and my body wasn't healing, like things weren't healing properly, and... So because I got wet feet, I got really bad blisters on the first day. And then so those blisters would surround each toe on both feet. And so my feet were basically raw. And then and then I lost the toenails on my feet. So the first week I was walking on raw feet with like toenails that had fallen off. So it was really gross, but and incredibly painful. And I think on like the third day, I was kind of walking on my heels and using my poles a lot as putting all my weight on my poles, almost like crutches. And my team was, they were saying, oh, you don't need to have a day off, like let your feet recover. And I was like, I'm not quitting on the third day. (laughs) This is not happening. So that was kind of hard. And I think for the positive, like just the whole walk, we were constantly, because we linked up with Brain Tumor Support NZ with, and so I was in contact with Mandy quite a lot. And she was saying, like, since we started the walk and it was very public, 
they were getting a lot, their phone calls increased. They were getting a lot of people saying, we never knew that you guys existed. We need support or this person needs support or this person needs to know where to go for this. And they got more people in their online support groups. And they, so that raising awareness was very apparent from the beginning. And I think that's what kind of boosted us along knowing that we were doing something that was making a difference. And I was getting, so we started a Facebook page that was separate to my personal one. And also a, so we had Beating the Track for Brain Cancer. That was the Facebook page. And I was constantly getting private messages on there from people that were just so kind of like they needed support and they, they were like, can you help me or can you, like what you're doing is amazing and you've just made it so much easier for everybody else. And and it just like, and but I'd hear so many stories about people's lives and people that were like, oh, my son got diagnosed with brain tumour or my cousin or my mum or I did. or And then it just kind of like, it's heartbreaking, but it's, you know that you're doing something positive for them and or you're helping them get that support. And I just keep giving them like contacts to Brain Tumor Support NZ or their phone numbers or their website or whatever. And, and kind of like they're raising them money. People were so generous with donations. Our Give a Little page got up to, by the time we reached Wellington, the Give a Little page got up to $35,000, I think. And but Mandy's told us that in that time that we did the walk from September to December, there was a lot of pledges, like a lot of donations and a lot of people that came on our mini walks that we had as many fundraisers along the way in each region, they donate that money straight to Brain Tumor Support. So we kind of collated all that. And so I think there was about $20,000 given in that time. So all up, I'd say around fifty which was our goal. So that was amazing. By the time we reached Wellington, it was even better because in Wellington, I decided that I'd had enough <laughs> for now. Yeah. So just decided that just to take it back, that was the best thing about the walk was that we did what we mm. set out to do. And it was a really awesome time for us to spend together as a family as well and just see parts of the country that we've never seen before or you'd never yeah. see from a car because you're in the middle of a bush or you're in the middle of somewhere that you can't get to by car and you're walking. So you're taking in all of what's around you as well. So it was just, it was so amazing. And I had friends, like I had a friend doing it with me. He did the whole thing with me and he's 70. And then the youngest, my friend, my friend who's trainer, she came and her husband joined us for parts of it. And their two kids did the whole thing and they're nine and 12. So we had such a diverse group of people, but we all started and finished together, which was really That's awesome. Pretty amazing. I it, there's part of my there's part of my thought process that is still stuck on the fact that you did this so soon after your treatment because I just couldn't even imagine like taking on that sort of that that kind of challenge. I mean, I did the it's like the eleven k traverse at Auckland Marathon a year after I finished chemo and that was <laughs> like a pretty, that was quite a big thing because it took such a long time to, to physically recover from the treatment that I'd had. So I, I there's part of my brain that is still like, wow, that soon? <laughs> yeah, I did get incredibly tired. So 
like by the end of the day's walking, I was out. Like I had to go to bed. I was so tired. And it took me a long time to recover. When the walk finished, I was tired for a long time. But I think my biggest, like the pro of, so when I was in Sydney, I had an oncologist who is amazing. And he told me, I remember from the first time I met him, and he said, there are going to be days when you're going through this treatment where you are exhausted or you, you're sick or you're whatever. The treatment's just affecting you really badly. But the biggest piece of advice I can give to you is stay active throughout your treatment. So there'll be days you can get up and he knew it, he knew that I lived across the road from a park. So he's like, go outside, go for a walk around the park as many times as you can. Just keep walking until you can't. And then he said, and on days where and that's a good day, and then on days where it's bad and you can't get out of bed, make yourself get out of bed, go for a little walk. Even if it's just go outside, just don't stay in bed. And so there were days where I would get up and I'd be like, oh, I feel all right today, and I'd get halfway around the park and be like, nope, (laughs) and kind of turn around and come back, which, yeah, could have just kept going, but get back to bed. And then there's days where I would walk around, I'd walk around and I'd be holding the bucket because I was so sick from the chemo. And But keeping active throughout my treatment, like I, he said that he'd never seen someone bounce back because I'd do five days of chemo, three weeks off, five days on, three weeks off, and for six months and then another six months. So, And I'd previously done six weeks every day of chemo and radiation. So it was a long time and every round I'd get sick like really, really sick. And so, yeah, walking that, <laughs> saying active was good. And he said just he'd never seen anyone bounce back after the five days so quickly. And it's because mm. I was staying active. So I think I just carried, <laughs> carried that on, just took it to the next level. <laughs> a few levels up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a few levels up. I think that is important because I've been thinking about this a bit recently because I, I've had to really adjust the way that I approach exercise or the way that I, I guess, because I've always had this stupid uh, idea that exercise has to be hard out and I liked intense things like I boxed for a few years and I liked hiking and things that made you just feel like red in the face and puffing and all that sort of stuff. And I um, I just have not been able to return to that level of intensity of exercise, mm. I can walk and I can do yoga and that feels really nice in my body, bike riding and that sort of thing. But that's about it. I just, my body or almost has gone, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, my body's the same though. Like I was, I mean, the walk was just, I mean, I say it was just walking. Like it was hard, but I'm not, I'm not yet back no. at boot camp or anything. Like I, before before my diagnosis, I was yeah. the same as you. I was doing high intensity stuff, and now nope. I'm like, nope. <laughs> I tried it once, and I was like, oh my god, I yeah, feel like I'm dying. Yeah, and I, because I was very similar to you. I mean, when I had my mastectomy and things, I kept walking, even if it was for ten minutes and things like that. I just made sure I moved, yeah. and during chemo, exactly the same as you on those really hard mm-hmm. days. Sometimes it was get outside, mm-hmm. walk around the backyard or walk to the top of the driveway other days I could manage walking around the block for 20-30 minutes it just and it yeah I think sometimes 
people kind of need to readjust their idea of that's actually okay. That's still movement. That's still your... And part of me thinks that it's almost the action of just moving yourself out of, yeah, lying in bed, which can be restorative, but can also be quite dangerous in your head when you're sort of lying there. Yeah, because you get stuck in your head a bit, eh? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess jumping right back to the beginning, What led you to being diagnosed? Was it a gradual thing? Was it sudden? What was going on at the time? It was. It was really sudden. So I, I was a youth worker in New Zealand, and then I I'm in like I'm from a small town, and so there wasn't really anywhere to go with that. And my friends had just moved to Sydney about a year prior, and I'd been kind of making hints like, oh, come come to Sydney, there's heaps and it, heaps to do and it's really cool. And and I taught their son, because I was a preschool teacher before that, and I taught their son. That's how I made friends with them. And <clears throat> so they said, you can come live with us. It's We've got a place and, like, there's a room for you. And, I was, and I've always been a traveller. Like, I've always loved travelling overseas and seeing new places and doing cool things over there. Anyway, so I moved over there and... I moved over there in January of 2019. <laughs> I went to Melbourne to visit a friend in February because I was still looking for a job and still kind of riding on the holiday buzz. And I went paddleboarding and I was being stupid on the paddleboard and I said, oh, I wonder if I could do a headstand. Yeah. And I did the headstand but failed miserably and then rolled kind of over. And I was like, oh, I hit my neck. And then the next morning, just totally coincidentally, I woke up with a, like a bit of a headache. And I was like, oh, must have put my neck out like real bad because my head's really sore. And so I went to a sports like massage therapist and she massaged my neck and she was like, man, it's really tight. Like you've got heaps of knots. So she was going real hard and I was like, oh, it's not helping. <laughs> my head's pounding. And I ended up in bed for like the rest of that trip and then flew back to Sydney, carried on doing what I was doing, trying to find jobs, going to job interviews and the whole time my head was pounding and I went to the osteopath I think three times over the space of two weeks and he did all these things that in hindsight probably terrible because he was doing like manipulation and (laughs) so I was probably not helping but I didn't know, I just sort of hurt my neck and then after about two weeks later, I was in bed and it was my birthday and I was turning 33 and my flatmates, so in Sydney on your birthday, you get to go to the zoo for a dollar. So I took the kid out of school and I was like, yeah, man, we're going to the zoo. Like, this is going to be awesome. It was the worst day. My head was pounding and apparently on the jetty, because you have to catch a ferry to the zoo, apparently on the jetty, I thought the jetty was moving. And then I said to, because suddenly the kid, like the child I was with, he's, I think it was seven, he grabbed my arm and I was like, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, don't worry. Sometimes when I'm with Nana, she does this. She she almost topples over and I have to balance her. And I was like, what? And I didn't even know what he was talking about. I said, oh, because the jetty's moving. And he's like, oh, maybe. And kind of just looked at me weird. And then we made it through till lunchtime. And I was like, babe, I'm so sorry. Like, we have to go now. I can't do this. And it was like, 
40 degree day, like it was so hot. And I was like, maybe I'm just dehydrated. And so we went home and then I went to bed and the next day I woke up and I couldn't get out of bed and I was, my head was pounding when I was lying down. But if I sat up, the room would start spinning and I'd just throw up. And so I was like, what is happening? Like, this is crazy. This I don't get migraines. Like, this is weird. And it had been almost three weeks. And so my, I had a Zoom job interview. So I was in bed <laughs> with a really nice top on <laughs> to pretend yeah. that I wasn't in bed, holding my iPad yeah. on an angle that you couldn't see I was in bed, and did this job interview for this Camp Australia job looking after children before and after school. And I've never oh. been in more pain than I was during that interview. And then I hung up and I was like, oh, this is enough. Like, And my flatmate rang me. I rang my flatmate and I said, oh, I think I need to go to the doctors or something. Um, and she said, yeah, mum's on her way over. She's like, well, she was living there as well. And she's like, mum's on her way home. She's picking you up. No arguments. You're going to the hospital. Because my thing was like, I'm not going to the hospital for any day. It was ridiculous. So she swung by, picked me up, took me to EG. I was like, oh, you go park the car. I'll walk in. I'll meet you in there. And I walked in. Saw the doctor and she said, oh, we'll just get you some painkillers and we'll send you home. And I was like, yeah, whatever. As long as you stop the pain, I'm fine. And then she asked me to go over to the nurse's station to get the pills. And at the time, I was like, that's weird. Why don't you just bring them? But I didn't say anything. But I didn't know that she wanted to see me walking. But I didn't know that at the time. I was just like, okay. And I walked over to the nurse's station and I knocked on the door and then... As I was standing there waiting for them to come, the wall on my right started moving and I was like, what? And tried to balance myself by putting my hands out. And then I just like (laughs) smacked into the door, like fell forward and hit the door real hard. And they, all the nurses just turned and came running. And then one came running up behind me and I didn't know what was happening. And I just started falling backwards. And they, they kind of guided me down. So I was lying on the ground. But the whole way down, they're like, you're okay. You're okay. You're okay. Like, I don't think I am. <laughs> okay. And so I was lying on the ground. And then I was like, what just happened? And then my flatmate's mum came in. And they obviously took me straight through. And they waited about, I don't even know how long they waited, but they got me to walk again maybe like half an hour later. And I took about five steps and just collapsed again. And then they were like, nah, you're not going home. <laughs> so they they put me straight through for a CT scan. And then the doctor who had seen me first when I first came in, she came up to my bed and originally they had me like lying on the hospital bed but at about a 45-degree angle and they're like, don't touch the bed settings. You have to stay at this position. So I was already like, this is weird. I just want to go home. I've just yeah. got a headache. And honestly, I couldn't even get up to go to the toilet. They were like, no, you're not allowed to move. And then the doctor came in and she's like, oh, so do you have anyone with you? And my flatmate's mum had gone to pick up her grandson from school. And my other flatmate and my cousin who lives in Sydney was on their way in. And so the doctor's like, oh, do you have anyone with you? And I was like, no, they'll be back soon. She's like, oh, okay, I'll come back. And I was like, nah. Tell me what's going on because... Obviously, that's no. not great news if I have to have someone with me. And she was like, oh, no, 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 we'll just wait. <laughs> I was like, no, just tell me. Oh, my God, what's wrong with me? And at not one point did I think brain tumour. 
Like, it didn't even cross my mind. I was just like, this is so crazy. I just want to go home. Like, this is weird. And then my cousin came, and then my flatmate's husband came in. And, yeah, the doctors came back, and they said, look, we've found this mess on your brain. We don't know what it is. We're going to do some more tests, but you're in, like, you're basically in critical condition. Wow. And so an hour later, I was in the in the ICU on the phone to mum in New Zealand who's like, do I come over? Like, what do I do? What's happening? And I was like, well, I don't know. They said they found something in my brain, but it should be all right. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm come, like right now. <laughs> and then, yeah, I was in the ICU for that night. And then the next morning mum arrived like first thing. And they said that what had happened, they said that because whatever it was, they still couldn't diagnose it as a tumour because obviously they hadn't done MRI or anything. But they said whatever it is, it's grown really fast, really aggressively. And so because it's grown so big so fast, it's actually caused a bleed on your brain. Yeah. So that that was what was causing the headaches was the, the bleed. And this is when it kind of like, I was like, oh. This is serious now. Because they said, had you not have come in when you did, you wouldn't have woken up the next day. Yeah. And so I was just like, what? (laughs) I just had a headache. This is crazy. And so then it was like, that was on the Friday night. I was in the ICU. Saturday, I think Sunday as well. Sunday I might have moved to the ward. And then... Monday morning they did an MRI and that's when the neurosurgeon came and saw me. He'd actually, he'd come and seen me in the emergency because they knew that they were dealing with something that was potentially going to be needing surgery. And I didn't know this. There's so much stuff that I found out later. Like, because at the time, obviously, it was just a blur of like, what is happening? But I found out later that they were going to have to operate to stop the bleed like to basically save my life and do emergency surgery if they couldn't get the swelling down with steroids. So that's why he came and saw me and apparently had this full-on conversation with me about what was going to happen. No recollection of it. (laughs) I remember seeing him, but I don't remember what he said. And then apparently when I was in the ICU, the steroids that they put me on really, really high dose of steroids and that stopped the bleed and, like brought the swelling down so it worked. So then they could proceed as normal. So then on the Monday they did the MRI and he came and saw me again and he said, yeah, so we've confirmed that it's a tumour. We don't know if it's like malignant or benign or whatever, non-cancerous, but we're operating. Like you basically don't have a choice. We're operating on Monday. So I had a week of them still on the steroids and yeah, lots of other medications. And then they operated the following Monday and then the following Friday they, so after the surgery, so it was seven, six hours of brain surgery. And so that was, that was a long day for mum. Two of my friends had flown over from New Zealand before the surgery as well. So that was really cool of them. Yeah. And then that was on the Monday and then on the Friday they came in and had the big meeting and by that, by then, Dad had flown over, so it was Mum, Dad, my cousin. He was there, and we we're all kind of waiting. We knew Friday was the day, and it, 
unfortunately, it was the day of the, it was the 15th of March. That was the Christchurch shooting. So there was like a lot going on. And I was like, uh, and the, like we were watching this horrific event in New Zealand take place on the news, like breaking news on the TV, trying to put aside the fact that we were having this potentially life-changing meeting in half an hour. And we're like, no, 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 this is more important. Like that meeting's not going anywhere. This is like breaking news. And then in walks like the surgeon, the two nurses, social worker. Like you know it's not great when the social worker walks in with all the doctors. And he basically just said to me that you've got a, we've just, it's the results have come back from pathology. You've got stage four glioblastoma multiform. It's 6.5 centimetres. It was encapsulated, so we've managed to get it all out what we could see. So what they did over there, which was incredible, was that they did an MRI. They put me under with anaesthetic. Then when I was out, they put me in the MRI scanner and they did an MRI. And they used live tracking MRI throughout the surgery. So once they'd gone in and they'd got what they could see on the MRI, they put me back in the MRI scanner and did another scan and then went, oh, there's a little bit there that we didn't get. So then they pulled me back out, took that out, put me back into the scanner, did another scan, and went, yep, that's everything we can see. She's good. Bring her out. And then they closed me up. And then he said that this is like what happens with glioblastoma is that it might be encapsulated, but there's in stage four there's always, if you think of it like little fingers that stick out, that are cells that they can't see, so you'll definitely need treatment. This is how it's going to work. And it was just like an hour of information overload after just hearing you have this death sentence basically and here's all of the information that you need to know for the next year of your life and then so then there was a key two chemo specialists by my bed telling me how that was going to work and then there was two radiation specialists telling me how that was going to work and and here's a goodie bag <laughs> like it was just information I was like that's not good like put some lollies in there or something and then about half an hour after that, all those meetings finished, and I was just in shock. Like, I was just lying there, like, what is happening? But then I must have taken, like, I must have been taking it in because then he said, I need you to repeat back to me what from what I've told you. And apparently I just went, blah, 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 blah. like, just told him everything word for word what he just said to me. And mum and dad were like, What? How did you know that? How did you just repeat that back? So I must have taken it in, but it is blurry now. So I don't know what that's about. Then they came in half an hour later and they're like, oh, so here's your discharge papers. You're you're free to go home. And I was like, oh, okay. So I had like half the top half of my hair missing. Oh, my God. Staples, dressings. It was They'd taken everything out, but I had some mum had like gone and bought me these real nice scarves to put around my head so it wasn't looking like Frankenstein yeah. leaving the hospital. And because of the surgery, my eye was all um, swollen shut, so I was really fat and swollen. So, and because of the steroids, I was all puffed out. So I look at photos now, and I'm like, who is that? <laughs> Terrible. Like, I can't believe I went out in public looking like that. And I was just... And I don't even recognize it now. 
Like, I don't remember looking like that, but I see the photos on my phone. So, and then, yeah, I just went home. Needless to say, it just completely flipped my world on its head. And not, no pun intended. It completely flipped everything upside down and kind of stopped me in my tracks. And it wasn't just me that it affected. It was my family. Like, it really affected my family and my friends. And again, going back to that small town community feel, it was like I had a whole town behind me. It was really special. Mm. And they, because they were like, oh, you're not here for us to do anything for. And I said, look, I don't want you to set up. Because one of, I keep getting people like, do you want us to set up a good little page? Like, should we do that? And I was like, nah, because, you know, like I've got my family support. And I feel, personally, I feel like those give a little pages are great. But they're, I feel like they're great for people that really need them. Like, if I didn't have family support and I had to pay for treatment, 100%, I would have been like, yeah, do it. But because I had my family support, I was like, nah, I just can't justify doing that. So because I said no to that, they organized a fun run in our community. And it was like you could either walk or run 5Ks or 10Ks and pay, pay to join and dress up. And they organized it. And I think, like, 400, close to 400 people from our town turned up to it and they raised almost $9,000 for me. And I was just so blown away. And because it's like our town's really good for that. Like if something happens, everybody jumps on board, but it's so weird to be on the receiving end of it. Like when you have done it for other people and then suddenly it's like, oh my God, this is about me. It's the weirdest feeling ever, but incredibly humbling and incredibly like I'm super grateful for it but yeah it was weird everything that happened and people would send me like everyone was sending me presents and sending me stuff and like writing me these novels about how important our friendship was and I was like well why like I feel like I'm dying or something and it, to me I wasn't I guess looking back I was terrified because I didn't know what was happening what was going to happen like the future suddenly was super uncertain it's really interesting, isn't it? I related to so much of what you've talked about because my diagnosis went at breakneck speech as well. And as you're talking yeah. about that hour where you're just given information, it was very similar with my oncologist. And I and I think about that mm. now and the words that stick out and still are in my mind, aggressive, high risk, High risk, mm. you know, like those are the words that kind of like, yeah, and mm. yeah, and just all those little bits. And I, I'm really curious about how that kind of has impacted you since, because I know we go through treatment and that can be really intense and we're focused on the treatment and getting to appointments and, and all those sorts of things. And then once that ends, and I, I think we've chatted about this before, where you come out that other end and you're trying to sort of repair yep. your life, you're trying to sort of make sense of what's going on, there can be a real disconnect in terms of what's going on for you and other people's expectations of you. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, I kind of, I've said it to someone else before and I, I may have said it to you, a lot of the time, and what I'm finding more and more, is that 
it was really, really hard going through cancer treatment, like going through the chemo, radiation, all of that stuff. Like physically, it was really hard. Emotionally, it was really hard. What I'm finding, and it may sound, I think it sounds weirder to people that haven't been through treatment or like haven't, that they haven't had to go yeah. through cancer treatment. That's awesome. But to them, it's, it's hard for them to realize that actually post-cancer, in some ways it's just as hard, yes. if not harder, because when you're going through it, you have all the support and all the medical team on board and anyone can answer your question at the drop of a hat. And although the physical stuff may be gone, like I don't have, I'm not sick from the chemo, yes. thank God, I don't have this, I don't have that physically, like all the physical stuff's gone, that emotional stuff is still incredibly huge and like I said there's not that support for post cancer stuff so like I've been to a counsellor because I was like I don't know what's wrong with me like I feel like I should be doing something more I feel like I should be outliving my best life because I've been given the second chance or whatever and like I've heard it on a podcast that there's so much pressure and again it's that unintentional pressure that people, like I've had people say to me, like, oh, then you must have a plan. Someone's got a plan for your life or you must have so much purpose because you're yeah. still here. Yeah. And I'm like, so all of my friends that didn't make it along the cancer journey, what, did they not have a plan or a purpose? And I get kind of a little bit mad about it because I'm like, that's really unhelpful. On this podcast that I watched, it was talking about that and it was that not only is that untrue, it's incredibly dangerous because it, it gives you this pressure that you put on yourself to be perfect at, you know, living your life and making the most of every minute. Like, no one does that. No. People say no. they could, but... And, yeah. And I... Because yeah. when, you, when you've sort of explained to me about your going on the walk and, and those sorts of things, it actually did make mm. a lot of sense to me because what it reminded me of, and I... What it made me think of is those, yeah, that year after it all sort of finished, and although my treatment went on for quite a while with Herceptin, you kind of do yeah. have this thing of, oh, I want to try everything. I want to do this hobby because I've never yeah. done it before, and I want to raise money for this because you suddenly, all of a sudden, it's sort of, you, you're in this weird space of, yeah, I've got to be really grateful, and I've got to be just sort of getting better and doing good because, you know, it's, it's this real, it's a mind fuck mm. to put it mildly. Yeah. And you're, you're desperately yeah. trying to make sense of this enormous thing that happened to you and you're still tired yeah. and you're still having all of these sort <clears throat> of um, side effects. But the expectation yeah. from other people is that you're better and that Oh, okay, well, it's yeah. over. You're fine, You're fine now. now. The treatment's over. Yeah. But something you said when we, first, when we first talked has really stuck with me when you talked about you having a bad cancer day. And it didn't mean during treatment, recently having a bad cancer day. And I thought that's such a good yeah. way of describing it because sometimes cancer is still really present. It's, it's really, yeah. it is. It's still sort of hanging around. Yeah, no, I feel like that. I mean, I said it. I had to deal with, like, I had to try and organize an MRI for myself because I, according to my medical team, I didn't need one for another year and I felt like I kind of wanted it. I kind of wanted it. I didn't want it. I I felt like I needed one sooner rather than later. And it was weird having to organize that and kind of 
almost advocate for myself mm. to get one. And so after having that for a day, I just, I got really, I don't know, like I just got really frustrated and I was super emotional and I had to suck it up and go to work for a few hours. And then as soon as I left work, it was like I put work, took the work hat off and then yes. fell apart again. And I was like, what is happening? Like, why can't I just kind of get on with it? And I got home and I just burst into tears and I was like, mom, I just don't want to deal with this. Like, I have to deal with this for the rest of my life. That's my reality. It's stage four. It can come back at any time. It's not curable. That's, and that's what stuck with me, what my oncologist, what the neurosurgeon said to me in that meeting that he had with me. He said, look, it may take five years to come back. It may take one year to come back. It may take 10 years to come back. But chances are, like, this will take you out at some point. And it's that constant living in fear of reoccurrence. Yeah. And so knowing, and so when I get, I get really frustrated when, like I'm having a bad cancer day or like feeling like I don't want to deal with this, but I have to. I feel like I'm allowed to have moments. Like I'll have moments where I'll just feel really shitty. Like I don't want to, I don't want to deal with it. I just want to pretend it's not happening, but I will always pick myself up. Sometimes it takes other people to drag me out of it, but I'll always pull myself out of it. And I'll, but when I'm in that moment, it's just really unhelpful for someone to say, oh, but you're fine now because it's over. And I'm like, yeah, for you. Like, it's over because I look normal. I've, my hair's grown back. My So many people, like, I can't get through a day without someone saying to me, wow, you look yeah. really healthy. You're looking so good. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Like, thank you. I say thank you, obviously. But on those days where I feel really shit and someone says oh how you just look I can't believe how healthy you look and I'm like you should see my inside yeah <laughs> there are meds no but it's like they don't see and it's the same with depression it's the same with anxiety people don't see what's underneath like you can put a mask on I can put a mask on and go to work I'm a kindy teacher I have to be upbeat and on show basically and so you can put a mask on easily even though underneath you could be completely fallen apart and so that's the hardest thing is that people see me as better or fine or good mm. or cured because, and your whole body is like going, oh my God, I'm still dealing with this. And because people think you're good, it's like you don't have that permission to have those feelings. Yeah. But nobody understands that unless they've been oh through God. it. I mean, I'm coming up three years. I'm, I'm waiting for the note to say I'm due for my mammogram. And I've really noticed it. This, yeah. You know, I've noticed every year, to be honest, that anxiety. And, mm. yeah, it just it impacts so many things. Like, I think it's down to, for many of us, we still have our physical scars, that every day we see our physical scar of where that cancer was. And, yeah. it, and I often think when we're younger, some of these things are more evident that, you know, we're looking mm. at we're going to see the fertility doctor about doing embryo transfers. And it's really scary because there's part of me that thinks I don't, I can't hold on to hope because I, I find it really hard to trust that things are going to be okay because yeah. history tells me that yeah. things aren't okay. 
and that's very hard to kind of move past and be positive and and, and those sorts of things. And then I there's been a, a very yeah. tragic death in my you know with someone that I is an acquaintance, but was such a beautiful, beautiful soul of a person. And it just seems to, yeah, my emotions are so raw because that's really hit me hard, just this sort of senseless death. And I think those are the the hangover markers for me of my cancer is life is just a little bit harder in in some respects. And in other ways, it got better and it went back to to normal as such. So it's not, you know, all one way or the other, but I I think that you're so right that there are these things that we experience as people who have gone through cancer that aren't talked about enough and that most people don't realise that this is out every day. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. There was something you mentioned before, and I think that it's particularly relevant at the moment in terms of we've just had a budget and not much was put through for Pharmac, protest a few weeks ago about patient voice Aotearoa saying things need to change. And I'm really curious because I know you had excellent care in Australia, but being in New Zealand, if it comes back, it's a different story for you, isn't it? Yeah, well, I still have to do a bit more research on it. But basically, when I was in Australia, they said they were they were really good at being positive. <laughs> so every time I met with my oncologist, and even like Mum got called on it, Mum came to all my appointments, and I remember once she said, "Oh, so when it comes back, blah 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 blah," and they like played <laughs> into it. They were like, "Not when, if like." Don't say when, say if. And so that was really good. But I noticed the first thing that someone said to me here was, oh, when it comes back, blah, blah, blah. And it just was a complete opposite. And it's not a like it's not saying they were wrong because chances are it's probably when. Yeah. But when I was in Sydney, they said, so if it came back, so I was on, I did six weeks of radiation and chemo every day for six weeks. And then I did six months of chemo tablets, five days on, three weeks off, five days on, three weeks off. And then I finished that six-month block and they said, look, although you you had a hard time with sickness and stuff, you've responded really well to it. So we're going to do another six months. So I did that as well. And basically was told that if it came back, that would just start from the beginning again. So I would do the same, six weeks and then the tablets from five, three weeks off. But coming home and having to do my last two rounds here, I managed to get the chemo treatment, like the tablets here. But then in my first appointment with a new oncologist, was told that if it came, or when it came back, I would have to do a different kind of chemo, which, like IV chemo, it would set me back probably around $20,000. And in Sydney, I was not an Australian. (laughs) Like, I was a New Zealander living in Sydney, and every month I would pay for my oh, would pay for my chemo and the pills and the anti-nausea pills and all of the medication I'd need cost me about $160 a month and it was $86 to see the oncologist a month. But that Medicare, their health system over there would rebate that and refund me, I think it was like $37 or something. So it was, it was doable and it was only doable because of my family, like because they paid for it. Yeah, when I came back here and was told, you know, no, you can't, 
we we don't do those tablets. Like you have to do IV and you have to do it like this. I was like, yeah, if it comes back, I'm going yeah. back to the. <laughs> that's terrifying. Like a, I didn't really want to think about it coming back, but B, I'm like, if it does, and I have to do like a different. It's just it changed everything, and I was so. I was, it sounds weird, but I was almost comfortable in my ways of treatment. Like it had become my new normal. Yeah. And even moving back, well, even coming back here for a holiday and then COVID happened. So then moving back here, even the thought of a new medical team mm-hmm. was terrifying because you have so much to do with your medical team that you just have so much trust in them. And I still, like, my oncologist here is great and he's like, he's awesome. But I really miss my oncologist and my holistic GP and the people that I dealt with over there. And I think it's not a, like, I think here in New Zealand, our health system definitely needs work. But I think too, like, I could, I don't want to bag it because obviously I still need it. No, it's, it is good in some ways. But it's, it's just a smaller country as well. Like Australia's got, is it a higher GDP or whatever they call it? So it's, it is very different. I think if you're looking at gaps, it's kind of more support around post-cancer stuff, like yeah. we've been talking about. Like, I, I feel like there's a massive gap there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and just that needs to be talked about more, just so that people that haven't been through it can start to understand. Sometimes I've got one friend that's great, and sometimes I'll just be like, no, just not having a great day. And she's like, okay. And it, like, you know, if someone else says, oh, it's Kate, all right. She's like, oh, she's having a cancer day or like a bad cancer day or whatever. And she gets it because I've kind of over explained yeah. it to her. <laughs> but everybody else, like all of my family friends and I'll be walking down the street and they're like, wow, you look so good. Like I've had someone come up to me and they're like, oh, you don't even look sick. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I'm not. <laughs> oh. Like, I'm not sick. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, oh, you must be better. You're looking really good. And I'm like, yeah, it's not yeah. the flu. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. I, um, someone, I saw someone on the weekend and they said, oh, you're looking really good. And I'm like, I don't know what it is. Maybe maybe it's because outwardly we can, we, we improve and we look better. And I don't know whether yeah. it's the frustration of, yeah, I look okay, but I'm, yeah, you said before, I'm fucked in the head to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not okay yeah. up yet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story and everything that's happened. You're welcome. Thanks for letting me rant on. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> it's what we need. We can all relate to it. Yes. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. The C Word Kiwis Talk About Cancer is every Sunday at 11.55am on Auckland's 104.6 Planet FM and anytime at www.planetaudio.org.nz forward slash the C Word.